Hello, you're listening to The Elegant Mind, broadcast on KAPY Valley 104.9 FM radio, serving Washington State's Lower Snoqualmie Valley communities of Redmond Ridge, Duval, and Carnation, and all points in between. My name is Mark Winwood. I'm a resident here in Duval, and I am your host for this hour-long program in which we discuss aspects of the Tibetan Buddhist mind sciences and the practical applications of those perspectives and understandings on modern-day life here in 21st century America. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today we have a special program as we're airing an interview I conducted with Teresa Opalka of Carnation. Teresa holds a bachelor's degree in biology from Seattle University, and she is a local wetland specialist. She's worked as a wetland ecologist or botanist since 1998 and is specialized in wetlands since the year 2000. Her experience includes wetland and stream delineations, wetland stream studies, wetland mitigation plans, technical writing, local and federal permitting, and botanical studies and surveys in forests and wetlands, Washington, Oregon, and in Alaska as well. Teresa founded Aquatica Environmental Consulting in 2006, and prior to her consulting experience, she worked for Weyerhaeuser, the U.S. Forest Service, and the University of Washington, the College of Forest Resources. So Teresa is very knowledgeable about this environment in which we live here in the lower Suquamish Valley, the wetlands, and anybody who's been here, um, especially this time of year, it's now late December, knows about the wet part, the wet aspect of the wetlands in which we live with all the rain and the snow melt and the streams and the rivers and the occasional flooding, etc., etc. So we're going to talk to Teresa about what she does and her perspectives of the wetlands here in our area, the aspects of the wetlands that are well protected, the aspects that need some better protection. And we're going to listen to that interview in the second half of this broadcast, The Elegant Mind. Before we play that interview, we'll listen to some music as we do every week from Bobby Vega, Bay Area musician, San Francisco Bay Area musician, Bobby Vega. And I'd just like to say some words about nature and and Buddhist understandings, Buddhist perspectives in terms of nature, which obviously will apply to much of what Teresa is going to talk about. Buddhists understand that all life is interrelated and interdependent and Nature, or we could say our natural environment, nature is kind of a shortening of the natural environment. Nature is alive and at least partly conscious by Buddhist thinking. It's neither sacred and perfect, nor is it evil and something that needs to be cleared away or conquered. The deep reality of nature is not separate from our fully enlightened nature known as Buddha nature or Tathagatagarbha, Buddha essence. Consider that perhaps in a somewhat less technical sense that nature is the conditioned world prior to extreme human distortion of the patterns of interrelationship between humans and the rest of the living beings on the planet. Nature can also be understood as the living web that interconnects individual beings, both sentient and non-sentient, in interdependence. 
the deep reality of nature is not separate from our own fully enlightened nature. When we purify our minds, when we clarify our minds, as we progress on the path toward awakening from ignorance and delusions and illusion, we experience the true nature of nature. And then we see that we are actually living in a pure land, in a land of incredible opportunity and fertility and beauty. From the Buddhist perspective, humans are not in a category that is distinct and separate from other sentient beings, nor are they intrinsically superior. Humans are not intrinsically superior to other sentient beings. Sentient beings are beings with mind, with mind. Obviously, human beings have mind, but so do animals and insects and birds, critters, anything that swims in the sea. <laughs> or in our rivers, sentient beings. And from the Buddhist viewpoint, humans are not in a category that is distinct and separate or superior to those other beings. All sentient beings are considered to have the potential in their mind, deep in their mind, of perfect awakening and enlightenment. And yes, that includes you, wherever you are, Whatever day it is, whatever time it is, wherever you are sitting and listening to this broadcast, every one of us, every sentient being has the potential for absolute perfection of mind. All sentient beings have that Buddha nature. And Buddhists do not believe in treating of non-human sentient beings as objects for human consumption or for human entertainment. Enlightened beings do not harm sentient life. If they did, they wouldn't be enlightened beings. It's that simple. Enlightened beings or awakened beings have compassion for unenlightened beings or unawakened beings who are attached to our polluted world filled with pain and suffering and who do not experience themselves as living in a land that is potentially free and pure and vast and beautiful and full of infinitely full of opportunity. Buddhists meditate. Everyone knows that Buddhists will sit and meditate. And one of the aspects of a meditation practice, by looking inward within one's own body and mind, that one gradually realizes that there is no ultimate division between inside and outside. That the patterns of the natural environment are not separate from the patterns of our own minds experience of those patterns is not considered an ultimate truth or the goal of Buddhist practice, but awareness of them is an important aspect of the path that leads to full awakening. So as I said earlier, we're going to listen to Teresa Opalka, an environmentalist, someone who is keenly aware of the interaction and the interdependence of our environment here in the lower Snoqualmie Valley, and certainly by extension, any environment anywhere, and the creatures who live in and depend upon that environment for their survival. Before we do, though, we're going to listen to some music. If you're a regular listener of these broadcasts, you're familiar with the musician who composed and plays our intro music and our outro music. That's Bobby Vega. Bobby is a Bay Area, as I said earlier, Bay Area musician. 
and each week what we do, Bobby's a friend, he's an old friend, he's a dear friend who has very graciously and generously offered any of his music, anything, and he's been playing music for a long time with lots of different people. Any of his music he has made available to me to be able to share with you. So there's quite a quite a catalog of music, types of music that Bobby has played. And what I'm going to share with you today is a song that Bobby, as the bass player in a rock and roll band named Zero, played. The name of the song is Chance in a Million. It's, uh, it's about seven minutes. It's a song with vocals in it. Some of the Zero music is instrumental. This, is, this has lyrics in it. And this song, Chance in a Million, was the encore to the show that Zero played at a little bar called the Cubby Bear in Chicago. It's right across the street from Wrigley Field, the Cubby Bear. And this was played the show of May 24th, 1998. So it's a little more than 20 years ago. It's a show that I was at. I was in attendance at this show. I remember it clearly. The place was packed. It was the end of May. It was kind of warm. And the stage was kind of small. It was crowded. The whole place was crowded but the music was alive that night and chance in a million is one of zero's more popular songs they usually play a fairly longer version of the song but this was the encore so they kept it to about seven and a half minutes bobby is the bass player in zero the other band members are greg anton on the drums steve kimmock on the guitar chip roland playing the keys, Martine Fierro on the saxophone, and the vocalist is Judge Murphy. Judge Murphy on the vocals. The song Chance in a Million, the lyrics, were written by Robert Hunter, he of Grateful Dead lyricist fame, the poet, the lyricist, the songwriter, Robert Hunter. So we'll listen to Chance in a Million, and then we'll, I believe there'll be some announcements, station announcements, and then we'll go right into my interview with Teresa Opalka of the Aquatica Environmental Consulting Group here in Duval, talking about these wonderful, wonderful wet <laughs> and soggy at times wetland environment in which we all live here in the Suquamish Valley. So once again, thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy the music. Zero, chance in a million. Say what'll be, get all I got, get what's coming to be. 
Okay, we're back. And now for the interview with Teresa Opalka of Duval, Carnation, the Snoqualmie Valley's Aquatica Environmental Consulting Group. This interview was conducted in Duval on Thursday, December 13th, 2018. Hope you enjoy. So I'm sitting here at Longevity Foods in Duval with Teresa Opalka, who has kindly agreed to talk to us about herself and her business and what she does here in the community, which is really a value. Teresa is the founder and owner of the Aquatica Environmental Consulting Firm, and she does wetlands consulting. And anybody who's familiar with the area here in the Lower Snoqualmie Valley understands the significance, the importance of our wetlands. They are everywhere. In fact, we're having a wetland kind of day today it's raining out. It's been raining every day for the past week or so. It's supposed to rain for the next week. So the wetlands are, are being intensified as we sit here and speak here at Longevity Foods. Teresa has a bachelor's degree in biology from Seattle University. She has been doing this consulting work, wetlands consulting work, for a few years. We'll talk about that talk about her her services and perhaps most important the you know this is a buddhist oriented program and buddhism is a philosophy and a practice in which the interdependence of people animals critters of all types and the environment in which they live are respected and made healthy as healthy as possible because the interdependence is important for everything and everyone. So it's great to be able to talk to Teresa. So welcome, Teresa. Thank you. You're welcome. So just to jump into our talk, who are you? And what you do is so important and it's so interesting. How'd you get started and why do you do this kind of work? How I got started doing it was just doing something that I enjoyed doing. I did not plan on being a wetland biologist. I have a degree in biology, but it's more of a, it's a pre-med biology degree. I wanted to be a veterinarian originally, although somewhere along the way there, I took a few plant classes in college and became a hobby for me. I got really interested in the native flora and through college, I taught myself all the native plants. And during my mm. classes, I was dissecting <laughs> animals and learning about anatomy and physiology. And I enjoyed that, but towards the end of college, I ended up doing a senior project helping a graduate student in an old-growth rainforest on Vancouver Island in Canada. And I spent six weeks crashing around this beautiful yeah. cathedral the <laughs> up there. old-growth rainforest. Yeah, and it was a remote area. We were flown in there by a float plane and dropped off. And wow. So I spent a good part of the summer up there, and I just, at the end of the summer, I thought, oh, this is amazing. Like, people can actually get paid for working outside <laughs> in these beautiful areas. And I, so that's how it started. Fantastic. You're from the area. Was your family involved in any way with the water or anything connected with wetlands in any way? Loosely <laughs> related. My dad is a commercial fisherman, so we're oh, definitely yeah. dependent on natural resources, our family was. Um, but yeah, not necessarily in a conservation <laughs> Yeah, aspect. Yeah. But respect for a healthy environment. Definitely. I mean, our, our fisheries, our, our salmon fisheries are a lot of the 
species of salmon rely on wetlands for part of their life cycle. Dad yeah. wasn't a salmon fisherman, but... You know, I'm, I'm originally from, from New York City. We don't have much... Well, actually, we do have wetlands in New York City along the Atlantic coast that were always completely environmentally challenged with the airports that are there and all the industry that dumps into the water there. But they were wetlands, and I believe they're actually being cleaned up as we speak. What are wetlands? To your mind, what are the wetlands and what is their, why are they important to the environment in which they exist? Sure. Wetlands, there's a, people will argue about the definition of a wetland still, but in general, it is, it's a unique ecosystem that is formed by the prolonged presence of water. And when you have an area where it's saturated to the surface or inundated for months, typically at least during the growing season, you get very distinctive soils that form as well as a distinctive plant community. So and part of this is the the water sits in a wetland for a long time. All those little pore spaces that are normally filled with oxygen in the soil are filled with water instead. And so what happens is you have a anaerobic environment and so the leaves that fall don't decompose very quickly and so they're really nutrient rich environments very productive, both because of the water and you have these rich soils that develop mm. just because the whole decomposition process is often slowed down and there's food for animals. So it's this unique little ecosystem that forms. And there can be all different kinds of wetlands from riparian wetlands that are next to a stream or a freshwater swamp. And then there's also the coastal wetlands, the saltwater. The bays and the sound. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, you know, one thing that I've, I've noticed here in the lower Snoqualmie Valley is that frequently in the wintertime, with all the rains, the valley floods. But yet in the summertime, what is in the wintertime underwater in the summertime is farmland. And it seems to be pretty fertile farmland. So I guess the folks in the valley, on the valley floor, really kind of struggle with the water and and but yet they're what you're saying their their farmland is is very very nutrient rich yeah and a lot of the farmland is not actually a wetland so the areas that are underwater so i mean we can have these floods where you have eight feet of water in the valley but then a week later it's gone where does it go back in the river <laughs> back in the river and yep. out to the puget sound and out mm -hmm. to the ocean so well some of those areas are wetlands a lot of them actually are not so the farmers in this area have done a pretty efficient job of often draining areas that used to be wetlands to make them productive farmland. And then there are, of course, still areas that hold water through spring and sometimes summer. And those areas are actually what would be a regulated wetland. It's regulated, and I, I've heard that the regulations here are very strict, very aggressive in terms of what people are allowed to do. I know we used to rent a place in Monroe and there was Woods Creek that ran behind, uh, way behind our house. And the people who owned our house wanted to build a little barn on their property. And it took them years to get the permit in order to build a barn quite a distance from the creek. And, and this is what you do. You kind of work with your clients to uh, navigate those regulations, keeping the client's interest in mind, as well as obviously the environmental interests. Yes, that's exactly what I do. I think a lot of people, I'd say most people understand that wetlands and streams have 
certain protections, but I think a lot of people don't realize that how stringently they are protected. So the stream and wetland itself is protected, and then there's also, in our area, often very substantial buffer setbacks as well that can range from usually the minimum is 50 feet and they can be a couple hundred feet wide in some instances so and yes there's a stream with a buffer setback meaning from the shore or the edge of the water at its usual high mark or low mark or how does that work sure for a stream it's measured from the ordinary ordinary high water mark which is a biological mark that's formed by flowing water and that's where it's measured for a stream. And for wetlands, it's a little more complicated. It's a finding the wetland edge. It's a combination of looking at the plants and the soil as well as the water, although you can identify the edge of a wetland in the middle of summer usually. Sometimes it's a little more complicated. <laughs> but there's very distinctive soils in particular that form when they're wet for a prolonged period of time. So it's, it's constantly moving. It seems like it's, a, it's kind of a moving target. It's not. It's not. No. So, and that's part of what I do (laughs) is being able to figure out where those boundaries are. And we're really expected to be able to do it 365 days of the year. Obviously, if it's flooding, that can be complicated. And there's some areas, particularly with farmlands that have been altered through draining or ditching, where it can be not possible to figure out those boundaries in in the middle of August. But it's often quite distinctive. So the soil, it's part of its soil chemistry, what's happening when the soil is anaerobic. It forms really distinctive soil colors. Mm. So sometimes there are a lot of people who have us come out in August thinking (laughs) we're not going to be able to tell that the area is underwater part of the year. Yeah, but surprise. But surprise. It's usually pretty obvious. And, and we have gone out to sites where we dig through 12 inches of fill soil to find really obvious wetland soil underneath. Yeah. <laughs> so those yeah. things. As I drive around here on you know some of our beautiful little country roads, there's lots and lots of streams. And I see signs that say salmon stream, protected salmon stream. And they seem to be everywhere. Are the salmon everywhere around here or... Are those historically salmon streams and not so much anymore? Or what's your take on that? If you see a sign that says salmon stream, it is probably a salmon stream. So it it depends on the Chinook are primarily just in the bigger streams and rivers, but you can definitely have coho spawning in streams that have small streams that are just a couple feet wide. I've seen small streams a couple feet wide that have maybe been diverted into roadside ditches, and I've seen coho spawning in roadside ditches before. So it is pretty amazing what they can, what they can get into. If it's not, if there's not a steep slope or a culvert that's blocked, it's pretty amazing where they, where they can go. From now on, when I see one of those streams, if I have time, I'm going to pull over and I'm going to look in and look for, look for salmon. I hope that would be very exciting. Yeah, you definitely should. It's interesting, you know, looking down there or yeah, there's, and there's some places, it's true, where you can just get out of your car and look in a ditch and see a fish in there sometimes. And there so, they are. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, it's Pacific Northwest. So, you know, one of the things that really in, intrigues me, I love to, to hike around. I've had, I've had some hip surgeries, and so my hiking isn't really all that aggressive yet. But I love, I love to walk through the woods, and, you know, and, and with my Buddhist ideas and my Buddhist notions and, and viewpoints, 
I tend to kind of feel like the woods are, are a home. You know, I'm not a critter who lives out in the woods, but I feel really at home in the, you know, I, I came from Florida, lived in Florida for a while, and the woods in Florida are very different than the woods here. The woods in Florida are hostile. Uh, the woods in Florida, <laughs> everything has thorns and stickers and everything hurts and everything cuts. It's very, very different and there's snakes everywhere and 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 you never know when you're gonna you're gonna come upon alligator that's just sitting on the side of a creek and it's very different. Here the woods seem friendly. They seem much more to what I'm accustomed to having um, grown up in New York and spent a lot of time up in the mountains north of New York. But with your understandings and your perceptives, I'm really um, interested to hear when you when you're out in the woods. What's what's your what's your sense? You know, I mean, you're you've chosen a career in which you are working to make wholesome and healthy the relationship between the people who live in these in this area and these wetlands and the wetlands themselves and the critters that live there. So I'd just like to hear your take on 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 what you enjoy and what you see when you're when you're out hiking through the woods here. Well, I think I'm happiest when I'm out in the forest and I think it makes people happy in part just being in the natural world. I think so many people I've talked to they go out and take a walk in the woods and they feel better and I think that's just because humans didn't really evolve to be on concrete and in buildings. I think that natural world makes us feel good. So when I'm outside, I'm not worried about what happened this morning or what's going to happen at the end of the day. I think I'm very much in the moment, paying attention to what's around me. So it's, I feel, as I get older, I feel like I notice more and more things every year, even though I feel like I've, you know, I learned our native flora 20 years ago. I'm still finding interesting things about plants that I hadn't noticed before, or I'm notice a bird doing something I hadn't seen before. So when I'm walking around the woods, I'm paying attention and noticing all these beautiful learning. things around me. Learning. And I'm still learning. I'm still very curious. And this last week I was out after we had those hard frosts and I noticed there were um, all the spider webs were frozen. And I thought, oh, right. This is like the couple days a year where you see frozen spider webs. <laughs> <laughs> and they're so beautiful. Um, but you just see that a couple days a year because it's the end of spider season. <laughs> yeah. So those are the kind of things that, that I think I'm, I'm paying attention to. I was last week or earlier this week, I was doing a delineation on some farmland in the valley and it was windy and it was pouring rain. And I think some people might be miserable in those conditions. And at times it was not fun. Um, my hands were getting cold, and but then I stopped and I looked up, and there was just beautiful uh, low clouds and mist going across the the hills above the valley, and I thought, oh, it's so beautiful that <laughs> I get to be out here, I get to be out here seeing this. So, I, I mean, not in nearly as dramatic a sense as, as you're talking about, but I love walking my dog. I have, I have an old dog, the OG's 18, 19 years old. And where we live, there's there's lots of critters. So you know the deer and the uh, and the bears that are around, and there's lots of rabbits and so on. And, and he he absolutely and I really enjoy walking with him because his his sense of smell is so acute. And we go for walks, and 
the rain, the fog, it doesn't matter, the mist, it really doesn't matter, but he loves it so much and he just darts around and, and just looking at, you know, the environment and, and at night hearing the owls hooting and there's owls everywhere and, and coyotes are yipping and, and I really appreciate. And moisture is, is so much a part of this. It's so much a part of where we live. It's in the air, it's on the ground. It's uh, it's so much a part of this environment. So you have you have children. I know you have uh, Cora. You're yeah, they're five and ten. Cora's ten, and James is turning six tomorrow. Tell me a little bit, if you will. I'm sure some of the folks that are listening to this who have these types of of, of sensibilities and inclinations to appreciate the the outdoors wherever wherever they live, have children that they would like to be able to share those perspectives with and perhaps enrich their children's lives more so than sitting at a screen playing some kind of video game or something, which kids are doing all the time now on their phones. And so tell me, if you will, just a little bit about how you, how you relate your environmental sensibilities and appreciations how you relate those to your children so that they can accumulate, I guess, some of those sensitivities as well. Well, the, yeah, the screens are hard. <laughs> They're hard in our house too. Yeah. So, and I really struggled with this with my kids because kids don't necessarily <laughs> can take them out in the woods with you, but they're often, you have to do things on their level. And I did struggle with this for a while with my kids, um, but the Wilderness Awareness School here in Duval as well. Um, there's also some great after-school programs that happen in some of the local schools that get the kids out into the forest. Those have been huge <laughs> for my kids. Sometimes not having their parent <laughs> being the one um, yeah. always taking them out has been great, but probably more so I think through those programs I've seen them do things on a kid's scale and be able to like go out in the woods and play games and play hiding games and doing things on a child's level. So that is one of the things that's been really useful for my kids. Are they getting it? Oh, yeah, they definitely are. Yeah, they definitely are. And they, you know, and it's interesting because I didn't, I was a kid that spent a lot of time playing in the woods and catching frogs and all of that kind of thing. But I didn't really start paying attention to what was around me until I was in my 20s. I, you know, when I was first in college and learning the plants, I thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea what was all around me. And then that was the same thing with birds. Um, probably five years later, I suddenly I had been out in the woods for so long and I'd never heard really all the birds singing around me. I had no idea, you know. So with my kids, you know, I can't believe all they know already because we've know oh hey did you see that look how cool that is you know there's all kinds of interesting things out there for them just sparking their curiosity and asking them questions about what's around them is huge and I like drive down the valley and my daughter said oh hey mom did you see that red-tailed hawk sitting on that snag like she can pick them out like you wouldn't believe (laughs) it's really fun and same thing you know I have a five-year-old who can tell you a lot of the berries you can eat (laughs) when you're walking around in the woods that's a good one so kids like knowing like what they yeah, what they what they can eat when they're running around, or yeah. what they could use to hide under if it's raining hard. And you know, one of what it's interesting. Uh, one of the things that I, I I do know that some parents struggle with as we get older and begin to develop 
sense of responsibility and, you know, again, quote unquote, you know, the, the sensibilities of interconnectedness is we begin to change the way we eat maybe tend to begin to stop eating meat or stop eating birds or fish and become vegetarian or and that happens a lot and in particular people who are who are studying buddhist ideas and buddhist notions they tend to think about that and gravitate toward that but the children are different the children like their chicken nuggets and so how does that work with your family, with your kids, or in terms of your, your diet and their diet? What do you do? Are the kids beginning to become... I know that your daughter is involved, and you and your daughter are involved with chickens, so which is great, but then do you eat chickens? And, and how does that work? So I'm just curious about that. We're not vegetarians. Earlier in my life, I went through a, a period where I was an almost vegetarian, but I just think health-wise it just wasn't a good fit for me. Yeah, interesting about like the chicken nuggets and that type of thing. Uh, my kids are very aware of where their food comes from and we talk about it and because my daughter, she's in our local 4-H program and she raises chickens for that, so she's very aware of the cost of eating meat and where it comes from. So she does eat chicken still. Yeah. And we have on occasion eaten our chickens, but not very frequently. Ours are pretty small that we have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think this, I, in our house, I don't like to, if we're eating meat, I don't like to waste it. And we don't eat a lot of meat either, but we definitely talk about it. And my kids will say, oh, I don't like that idea of eating. I don't like that idea of eating a chicken because <laughs> we have chickens that are friends. <laughs> right. And I think one of the things that we've learned through, we live on a small farm and have a lot of animals. It's like a lot of people will dehumanize the animals that we eat just because they don't like to think about, like most people would never dream of eating their cat or their dog. But the truth is, if you spend a lot of time with an animal, even things like chickens, I mean, they can be trained to, to follow you around and trust you. I mean, like my daughter, our kid, my kids definitely <laughs> pet chickens. Right, and they have names. And, and they have and, and names. And you dress them up in costumes. <laughs> she dresses them up in costumes and does all kinds of crazy things with them. Right. So, um, yeah, so I guess it's just like, yeah, it's, if you're going to, if you're going to be eating an animal, it's like, better know where it comes from. You know, there's the tradition I've heard in, in from different traditions, the tradition from different traditions, when one is eating, you know, something that had been living to kind of thank it for the nutrition it's about to give you and for sharing and, and sacrificing itself. The Tibetan Buddhist ideas and notions, if one is eating some meat at a meal, and many Tibetans do eat meat, need meat in their diet, there are special prayers that are said specifically because one is eating something that had been living. So there's an, an appreciation. And that whole idea, I think, of being aware and appreciating and thanking the creature for giving you nutrition actually strengthens your bond with the environment around you and all the creatures around you. There's a, a dependency upon one another that's really understood in ways that perhaps not if that thought isn't put into the meal. Yeah, I think that that gratitude is important in so many areas of our life, not just with what we eat. Yeah. So what would you like to say? We have, we have just a few minutes to go. What would you like to say? This is your, your forum now. 
this is the work you do, the appreciation that you have. What would you like to say to people who are listening to this program who perhaps have not yet cultivated or have not yet developed that appreciation or that sense of oneness with, with the environment? With the, You know what? Before we even go there, before we even go there, a question came up before that I'd, I'd like to hear your response to, and that is my understanding, and I think the understanding of a lot of people who live here, who have come here from other places who are not native to this area, is that the reason that this is such a wet environment, there's so many streams and so many creeks and the rivers that flow into Lake Washington and then into Puget Sound and into the ocean. And even though we get lots of rain in the wintertime, much of our water is really from the snow melt that comes out off the mountains. Mm -hmm. And the flooding that occurs here in the valley, someone told me, the flooding is because there's snow up in the mountains and there's unusually warm weather and that snow just pours down and into our area on its way to the ocean. Um, so how, how do you, what's your, what's your sense of, of the relationship between the Cascade Mountains, which are off to the east of us, and the water coming off those mountains and, and the effects of that? Sure. It's all kind of going back, actually, to one of your earlier questions about what I think about in the woods, especially when I'm working in the woods. What I'm doing is... Obviously, I'm trying to find the edges of wetlands and streams and locating them for people who are buying property or who are developing something on their property. And when I'm doing that work, I am trying to figure out how it's all working. So one of the things that I'm thinking about when I'm working in the woods and locating and delineating the wetlands and streams is trying to figure out where is the water where is it coming from and where is it going so I can understand the whole picture of how things are working. And from working in this area, I've lived in the valley for about 16 years and worked in quite a different, been lucky to work on so many different properties and see so many different areas. I just have this mental map in my head <laughs> of the watershed and the different streams and the tributaries and how they connect to each other. And when you're working in the valley, in particular in the valley bottom, knowing the flood cycle and if it's 50 degrees and you're working there in December, it's like, oh, okay, there's going, there's very likely is going to be an abnormal amount of water here. And that's really important for what I'm doing and my work. But it's also just the acknowledgement of the whole process and how everything is connected. And so that is pretty central. So somebody says, oh, well, I live, you know, I live right Right up by Lake Marcel, I think, oh, yeah, I know that the creek that comes out of the lake and it wraps around and actually kind of goes along the base of my property. And then I know where it crosses Highway 203 and goes into the yeah. goes into the Snoqualmie River. And so it's like kind of this like, macro knowledge of like, oh, yeah, I know how all of that <laughs> is working. Yeah. And then, oh, well, there's a there's a wetland right at the top of the stream up there it's like oh that's probably the the headwaters of that stream so I've worked on some small tributaries and I thought oh yeah I remember the wetland that's at the top of that that's a seepy slope and that's where the water's coming from for that that stream so oh interesting, interesting how it yeah. how it all fits together and how it's you know it can be decades of yeah. <laughs> of little bits of information on how the, everything in the area is working so you're the work that you do and the knowledge that you need to accumulate requires you, I just 
to go walking through the woods, not on hiking trails or normal paths, but you literally have to go into the woods and discover and look for, for boundaries. And, and Yeah, what that, I do isn't really hiking. <laughs> right. There's been many a, a, a people who, oh, that must be great to be able to hike around in the woods all day. And it is great, but it, it is, a, is a definitely a different a yeah. different thing when you're doing this type of work in the forest without a path. You just learn to walk not knowing where your foot is going to land and <laughs> being prepared for that. So. I just picture of you with the machete chopping your way, <laughs> chopping your way through the uh, through the growth. I rarely use a machete. I'm more like a rabbit. <laughs> what do you mean? Um, it's a lot of work to actually to hack a path yeah. through the forest, yeah. especially if you're in a really dense area with thick salmon berry. It's easier just to um, maneuver, <laughs> weasel your way around through the like bushes. Like a rabbit. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I've I've lost clients before that have <laughs> tried to follow me. Okay, so this is your soapbox. You're on the soapbox. You're very involved in the environment, keeping the environment healthy, understanding the environment, while at the same time, you know, we are undergoing here in the valley tremendous growth. One of the big issues here in Duval is all the development that's going on and the Redmondizing of Duval, as people say major, major issue. Lots of folks are very upset about it. The city of Duval sees growth as one of its one of its necessary paths is to is to grow this area, develop this area. There's so many people looking to live here. So you're kind of you're in the middle. I'm definitely in the middle. Um, and it's such a complex issue. So I grew up in the greater Seattle area and just during the course of my life, you know, I've I've seen so much change. I've seen the woods that I played in as a kid. Most of those are gone now. I've seen the places where I used to ride my horse. Those are gone. And been in the forests that are gone now, some of them that have been developed. And it's heartbreaking because I feel like my heart is in the forest. At the same time, there's a lot of people that want to live here. And the land use problems are (laughs) so complex. I don't know that I have a solution for them. You know, I think it's easy to... um, look at a new apartment building going up and say that you know this is a terrible thing it's horrible we're turning into we're turning into Redmond and and it is hard to see the change but at the same time everybody needs to consider like how what do you want to have happen there are people here and they're either going to live more densely in some areas or we're going to spread out all over the place I think if you fly over Houston or Dallas and you see these cities that don't have any kind of comprehensive growth management it just goes to the sprawl goes on forever so so with wetlands and streams in this area they are stringently regulated and sometimes I have definitely seen things where we have a pretty low value wetland say something that's in a farmed field it has some water part of the year but it's small that that wetland even though it's small it's not very big it has all the protections and that 80 year old forest on the hillside doesn't have any but any protection or very little and so a lot of times people will drive by and we've seen this locally recently a huge area of forest is gone and they hate the developers that are doing this work and ruining the forest and they think the developers are getting away with everything but what's happening here is like and I've worked for developers before too 
And they really are held to the same rules everybody else is held to when it comes to protecting and adhering to wetland and stream regulations. But those huge forests don't have protections. So if you don't like seeing that, that's something that maybe right. you should look at. Look at changing. So, Right. And when the forests, when the trees get cut down, then there's nothing holding the soil in place any longer. And then we have four months of steady rain and the soil is not being held in place and it flows with the water and goes into the rivers and goes into the streams and then you start changing the entire composition of those streams and all the all the creatures that live in the streams and feed at drink at those streams are no longer able to do that and so it, it's a uh, it's a progressive interactive issue to clear a forest can can affect lots and lots of things around and then come out of that forest for years to come. That's part of what your job is, is to try to negotiate that. Yeah, and, and I've definitely had, I've had projects where everybody is standing around looking at this little tiny wetland that nobody can touch. In King County, um, say if you live in unincorporated county, the only way you can fill a wetland, it doesn't matter if you're a private homeowner or if you're a developer with deep pockets, the only way you can fill a wetland is if you have to fill it for accessing your property or for certain agricultural exemptions. So wetlands really have quite a lot of protections in this area, not necessarily in the rest of the country, but in this area they do. But meanwhile, again, you know, the big forest on the hillside is not what has the protections right. necessarily. So a tough problem and I don't have all the answers to it. Well, you have to have the answers. It's your job to have the answers. What I have you, the answers. What do you mean I you have don't the, have the answers? I have the answers with regarding the, the wetlands and streams. I can help people through that part of it. Yeah. Well, Teresa, um, thank you. If people want to get in touch with you just to chat, they have some questions, what is, is the best way through email or phone? And if it's email, what is your email address? or phone number, how would you like to be contacted? Yeah, email is best, and it's on my website. And my email address, it's Teresa at AquaticaEC.com. That's... Okay, so that's A-Q-U-A-T-I-C-A... E-C.com. Right. Aquatica.com. If anybody has any questions and can't find Teresa, you can be in touch with me, Mark Winwood, and you can get to me at mwinwood, M-W-I-N-W-O-O-D, at gmail.com, and I will hook you up with Teresa. So thank you so much. It is, it's been great, and, and thank you to uh, Lakita and Morali for letting us use Longevity Foods. It's Longevity Foods is a, it's a restaurant, a vegan restaurant. It's a grocery store. We have our Buddhist meetings every other Thursday here at 6 p.m. And now it's a radio studio. So thank you to Lakita and Morali and Teresa Apalka. And this is Mark Winwood. Thank you so very much. Okay, well, there you go, Teresa Apalka. Really, really sweet and smart hard-working individual who lives here in the valley working to make it a better place for all of us to live including all the creatures who were here way before we were living in the forests and the woods and the streams and the rivers and in the air wonderful job important work wonderful job 
So in conclusion, just some thoughts about nature and Buddhism. You know, nature as wilderness is important to Buddhists because it provides a place where progress in Buddhist practice or self-cultivation can be made. Nature provides a wonderfully fertile environment. Dharma work, Dharma practice, Dharma insights to, to occur. Why is this? Well, because nature grounds us and nature can, can soothe us. Unspoiled natural locations, usually places in the wilderness where the natural energies are peaceful, are wonderful places for Buddhist practice. There was a great Thai Buddhist master who lived in the late 19th and early 20th century, a forest meditator named Ajahn Mun, who said, the more desolate and distant the place is from human habitation with wild beasts roaming freely about, the more prepared is the mind to soar up from the abyss of defilements being at all times like a bird about to fly. The defilements are still there in the depth of the mind, but in such an environment, the power of the mind is greatly developed and appears to have gotten rid of hundreds of defilements with only few remaining. This is the influence of environment, which gives encouragement to a practitioner, whether with Buddhist inclinations or not at all times. So this is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind. Once again, thank you for tuning in. If you would like to get some more information about what we do here, what I do in the local area with the Chenarizic Project, teachings and practices that go on in Duval and online, um, or if you'd like to learn more about what Teresa and her Aquatic Environmental Consulting Group do, please be in touch. Send an email to mwinwood at gmail.com. Very simple. mwinwood, W-I-N-W-O-O-D, at gmail.com. I can send you some information, contact information, whatever it is that you're looking for, as well as some literature, some ideas, some notions on the connections between Buddhism and environment. In the meantime, enjoy the wetlands say a little some words of thanks to Teresa and people like Teresa who strive to keep our environment clean and beautiful and healthy for all who live here thank you so much we'll see you down the road bye bye